Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I'm delighted to share with you the brilliance and loveliness of one of my former colleagues, Achana Shastri. Achana and I first started working together back in 2010, and it was my very first role in FCPA and anti-corruption compliance. I was living in a new country and generally pretty timid still for multiple reasons, and I was really thrilled to find that my peer in the compliance team was just a quiet, gentle, really nice person, and I'm so glad that we've stayed friends over the years. I think we made fast friends knowing that our souls were very similar personality types. And so I'm really pleased to have Chana with us today. Chana, welcome. Please share with us your background. Thank you, Mary, for inviting me to the Great Women in Compliance podcast. It's been a long time. Uh, (laughs) Mention of great women, Mary, leads me to introduce myself to your listeners with a sense of trepidation. (laughs) Quite simply, I am a compliance professional with 13 years of experience in leading the compliance function for Asia Pacific for companies across various sectors. So since 2020, I've been heading the compliance function for ThyssenKrupp's Asia-Pacific businesses that spans from materials trading to industrial solutions, from automotive to cement, and from production of green hydrogen to the manufacturing of green steel. I qualified as a lawyer from India, and I have worked with mid-tier law firms as well as listed companies as in-house counsel in legal and compliance roles. As I've always been passionate about compliance, I went on to augment my practical compliance experience with a master's in anti-corruption studies from the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna. On a more personal note, I grew up in the vibrant city of Mumbai Mm -hmm. before moving to Singapore in 2009. And what was meant to be a two-year adventure, which I'm sure you will relate to, (laughs) culminated in me making this island nation my home. Oh my goodness, absolutely. I also had exactly two years in mind for Singapore. And unfortunately, that meant that I had an awkward situation because I'd left so much stuff in storage in New Zealand that I was planning on just jumping back into and the fashions wouldn't have changed so much and and everything. Unfortunately, that was poor planning on my behalf. But you even now have become a Singaporean. So we will caveat, I'd love to hear from you some of the Indian specific perspectives. We love doing country profiles on the podcast, but Archana and I will just caveat that today's views and opinions from our through the eyes of someone who hasn't lived on the ground for quite some time. If there are any updates or things that anyone would like to share that they feel are in real time and represent that from today, feel free to get in touch and we'd love to share some of the views. But I will be asking Archana a little bit about her background. As you stated, you're originally from the mighty country of India. And in fact, as I stated, we met while working together for the Indian conglomerate Tata. Archana and I worked in telecommunications. 
So I'd love to hear from you. What are some of the unique cultural perspectives and practices of India that may pose unique risk exposure for businesses that global compliance officers should be aware of? Let me start by sharing that India is a country comprising 28 states and eight union territories with a total population of approximately 1.38 billion. I believe India is set to overtake China as the most populous nation very soon. So you can imagine that in a large country like India, neither the culture nor the risks of doing business can be easily explained or generalized. Mm. However, let me share with you just a couple of nuances of the Indian society that have over the years become so deep-rooted that we euphemistically call it the Indian culture. The Indian society, whether in business or otherwise, works on a strong network of connections, very similar to the concept of Wangsi. Uh, These networks or connections are built assiduously and strengthened over a period of time through acts of hospitality, exchange of favors, and a general respect for hierarchy in relationships. When global compliance professionals understand that working through and building such connections is a reality and a way of life in India, they might be able to come better equipped to deal with the risk mitigation measures and tailor their approaches to meet the local business culture, as well as at the same time still protecting the company's interests and ensuring it remains compliant. Another very interesting and uniquely Indian concept is the concept of Jugaad, which is deployed almost in every walk of life in India. Jugaad quite simply means a method of problem solving that uses resources in an innovative way. Oh, I love that. So it certainly seems ingenious. (laughs) Uh, However, that ingenuity often leads to businesses in India to devise workarounds or to Mm -hmm. find loopholes Mm -hmm. to bypass what they may perceive as a hindrance to getting the deal through. So if you're a big multinational company working with a small to mid-sized business partner in India, and you're expecting them to follow your standards of compliance or processes or corporate governance, don't be surprised if they find a jugaad to meeting your (laughs) onerous requirements. So that's just a couple of things that I can share from, like you said, my time of growing up and Mm -hmm. understanding the the cultural Mm -hmm. uh, construct in India. Mm. One thing that I will say, and I I still do often, is we loosely use the term Indian culture when it comes to certain aspects of compliance. And that's why I say that it's something that we've got to be very careful about. Mm. Culture is very different, but habit is something completely different, right? So what actually Mm. happens in actual business is something quite different. So for compliance professionals, especially international compliance professionals, who find themselves having to deal with India, just be a little mindful where you might get people saying, oh, this is the culture in India. Just do a little bit of your own digging understanding. But of course, also understand that there are those nuances, definitely. Wonderful. That was super helpful. Thank you. And just for any of our listeners who haven't lived and worked in the Asia-Pacific region, Chana mentioned Guangxi, which is a Chinese term, and you probably would have gotten the gist of it when Chana was talking, but just to confirm, it refers to a business construct by which a lot of the way in which business is done relies heavily on networking and connections. And I think conflicts of interest are 
uh, endemic across the world. But I think in countries that rely even more perhaps than usual on social connections can mean that we need to be a little more careful and keep an eye out for potential conflicts of interest that, that may arise. Wonderful. Thank you, Archana. And dear listener, one of my favorite facts about Team India is that the country found a way to make whistleblowing easy. In India, you can whistleblow through WhatsApp to the police. And for any of you unfamiliar with WhatsApp, it's an instant messaging app that runs simply off data usage on your phone, very similar to iMessage. Because your WhatsApp can be linked to a secondary SIM, this creates anonymity for the reporter. And the people of India have really embraced it. It's been wildly successful. I don't know of any other countries that have this as an official avenue that can be used. And certainly if there are, I would imagine that India would have been the first perhaps to put this into place. But I love the simplicity of using an app that is rampant in Asia Pacific as a way in which you can contact the police. If you could pin a letter to all European and US headquartered compliance functions, on behalf of the Asia-Pacific region, what key points would you want them to know about the challenges of being an Asia-Pacific head of compliance? What a tall task. I'm fairly certain that the vast majority of European and US headquartered compliance functions understand the general landscape of compliance risks that the Asia-Pacific region poses. So rather than focusing on the obvious compliance challenges posed by the region on the topics of bribery, corruption, conflicts of interest, like you said, I would submit this. According to a 2021 report by McKinsey, although the COVID-19 pandemic has caused considerable hardships, Asia, they believe, would remain resilient and opportunities for growth will open up. The Asian economy contracted by 1.5% in 2020, while the world economy shrank by 3.2%. Asia is also expected to rebound faster. And in July 2021, the IMF forecast that Asia would grow at 7.5% in 2021 and 6.4% in 2022 compared with 6% and 4.9% for the world. Mm -hmm. So against the backdrop of this growth forecasting for Asia, I would say this, yes, Asia-Pacific region poses challenges from some of very basic and even traditional compliance risks. And yes, Asia-Pacific is a region far away from the seat of where your boards and key executive stakeholders are based. Yet, I personally believe that the time is ripe for mm -hmm. internationally headquartered compliance functions to seriously look at the business strategy in Asia-Pacific and accordingly invest in the regional talent and resources that are necessary to be prepared to support the imminent growth of their businesses in the region, as well as to partner with them with a view to helping them succeed, especially given some of the unique cultural and business compliance risks will, that do and will continue to exist in the region. So I'll conclude with this. Please design your compliance programs, your global programs, in a manner that applicability and adaptability mm. within Asia-Pacific is not an afterthought. I'd say don't be afraid to travel to all parts of mm -hmm. Asia-Pacific, free of biases and preconceived mm -hmm. notions. And don't forget that the regional compliance talent exists and can mm. be far more valuable in embedding your global program effectively in the region mm. than you might actually uh, think. 
So resource and support your regional compliance team proportionate, not just to the business of the day, mm. but for the growth of tomorrow. Oh, I love that, Chana, and I'm such a big sponsor for that as well. Thank you. One of the things that I most admire about you is that a few years ago, you got your master's degree in anti-corruption studies from the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna. And I know you mentioned that in your introduction as well. I remember being insanely jealous about you getting to travel to Vienna in the name of compliance. And I still have not made it to Vienna yet, despite my rampant travel. What was that experience like? And what were your key takeaways in respect of compliance from attending that course? I can only endorse, Mary, you must go to Vienna. And also, if you're there, make a visit to Mm -hmm. the International Anti-Corruption Academy. The two years I spent as a student in the MAX program were probably some of the best years of my life. I made some friends for life, some great connections for the years to come. But most importantly, it opened up my mind to understanding topics of compliance, ethics, and even cultural nuances in a way that I could never have imagined. It made me far more thoughtful, critical, and practical as a compliance professional. At least I think so. I came away with a lot of food for thought. In my opinion, sincerity and Mm. impracticality are some of the biggest challenges an effective compliance program can face. And Mm. these reflections only came about when I was exposed to some of the most experienced and articulate professors Mm. that I had the opportunity to learn from at the academy as I drafted up my papers and my dissertation for my master thesis. There was a time, you might remember, many companies still focused heavily on using CPI scores and country Mm. rankings Mm. as a cornerstone in designing their risk-based compliance processes, such as due diligence on intermediaries and third parties and annual risk assessment programs. My time at the academy and as a student of Max really helped me understand how the index actually came about Mm. and what are some of the inherent challenges to simply using CPI scoring and country rankings Mm. as one of the most critical design features of your program. It helped me learn that there was no substitute to understanding my business, the varied complexity and differences in my region, and also the history of my stakeholders in my business in my region. Then, of course, the CPI would form a part of my mitigation measures that I would have to consider when I had to provide advice or any kind of guidance on any topic of compliance. I also learned, and I'm not sure whether this might be a little controversial, (laughs) but I also learned of the practical pitfalls of a zero tolerance compliance policy. It's a phrase that I do not use lightly anymore. We as compliance professionals probably understand the importance of optics, Mm. no other function. And I truly believe that in order to just have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to compliance. And if your employees and your colleagues cannot see that in practice, it can actually do a lot more damage to your program Mm. than you could, that you would think. Mm -hmm. If your organization is unwilling, Mm -hmm. unable for any reason to apply the zero tolerance policy when it's highest revenue earners Mm -hmm. and when it's highest ranking employees, are Mm -hmm. violating your code of conduct or your code of ethics, then I really think that you need to have a good look at your zero tolerance policy and think about it, whether this is the appropriate messaging at this point in time Mm. for your organization Mm. uh, and whether it is probably causing more harm 
especially with your speak up culture initiatives that i know that all regions and all the teams in the regions mm-hmm. work very hard mm-hmm. in everything yeah so these are some of the things that i came away with Thank you. And so many things to discuss there. First off, Lisa and I would love it if you were a bit controversial because apparently that helps us get more listeners, according to the professionals. But I think what you said makes absolute sense. And if I would tie it back to your earlier point about insincerity, one of the things that's been bugging me recently is inauthentic leadership. And sometimes you've referred specifically to hypocrisy in this, or say one thing, but do another, essentially. And I worry about how leaders treat people in situations of mass layoffs and restructure. And I'd love to write an article on this someday. So it doesn't surprise me that now you and I are across the other side of the world from each other, but we're still on the same wavelength and really interesting views. And I would tend to agree with you on, on, on your point about zero tolerance. If you're going to be zero tolerance, actually be zero tolerant. Because I think one of the greatest sort of pillars for a culture of integrity is when there can be a trust and consistency in an organization. And part of organizational justice is that everyone will be held to the same standard and meaning that if there is any kind of misconduct, even the high value employees, so-called need to be disciplined. If you're going to be disciplining other people in the organization, and there is very few greater ways to lose trust from colleagues, seeing you say one thing, but do another. Achana, my next question for you is, what are the hot topic risk areas companies are ruminating about right now in the Asia-Pacific region? While bribery and corruption, as well as conflicts of interest, remain hot topics in the Asia-Pacific region, recently seen an uptick in work around personal data and data privacy. And for some businesses, even the topic of sanctions compliance has become quite a hot topic. So, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Okay, so reflecting trends that we're seeing elsewhere as well. So make sure you're covering those areas in your APAC businesses. And do you think companies are still more concerned about enforcement action out of the DOJ and SEC or more local regulators these days? So since the region is so varied, I would say it's a mix. Of course, multinational companies with regional businesses in Asia Pacific are still most concerned about enforcement action from regulators like the SEC, the DOJ, even the SFO. Mm. However, we have seen over the years that regulators have been collaborating and coordinating uh, across borders. And therefore, there is a growing concern, and rightfully so, about enforcement action from regional regulators as well. So, for instance, Australia has been very active and has a very highly engaged set of regulators, be it for topics like antitrust or the latest expansion of the whistleblower protection. Similarly, in Indonesia, the Kapika has been known for their enforcement work on topics of bribery and corruption related issues and also for collaborating very closely with international regulators. The CPIB in Singapore has had some prominent enforcement actions as well. And for Singapore based companies, they remain front and center. Mm. However, there is no denying that regulators like the SEC and the DOJ have some of the most prominent enforcement actions and some of the most sizable fines and therefore come for companies in the region that have international headquarters, especially in the US. Mm-hmm. These regulators still remain the regulators of most concern. Great. Thank you for that. 
There has been talk for a few years now about privacy regimes being implemented or further developed in the Asia-Pacific region in the case of countries like Singapore, sorry, I was thinking Hong Kong, New Zealand and Australia, which have historically had data privacy legislation in place for some time. Singapore, I guess, has been the middle. It feels like around about 2011 that was brought in, so medium age, maybe teenager, we can say. One of my favorites was Thailand, which was looking to go from essentially no privacy regime at all and a zero to hero construct, including a breach notification requirement. So how are companies out there viewing data privacy, especially after the advent of GDPR? And I will acknowledge that I was listening to your last answer in which you talked about the uptick (laughs) in data privacy. Absolutely. Yeah, it is something that we are seeing a lot more of at Thailand, upping its game immensely mm. with the Thai PDPA, almost benchmarking to GDPR and <laughs> yeah. a topic maybe for another podcast. Singapore has been active actually in this area. Like you said, it's a teenager, but they've been very active in this area for a few years now. The mm. PDPC has been doing some really good work around raising awareness, providing a lot of information on the topic of personal data protection. 2017, the Supreme Court of India declared the right to privacy as a fundamental right oh. under the constitution. So they are looking to get theirs. The personal data protection bill is now Mm -hmm. expected. The hope is that it will pass sometime Mm -hmm. later this year. South Korea, let's not forget. One of the stricter data protection regimes, I understand, in the region. They've made some amendments in 2020 and China as well. Mm, The personal information protection law going into effect in November 2021. So yeah, we are seeing an uptick in this topic. We are also seeing businesses becoming a bit more mindful of uh, personal data privacy and personal data protection in projects that they undertake, something that we never saw earlier. Historically, we saw these kind of questions and requests being very low with our colleagues in Europe doing most of the heavy lifting there when Mm. GDPR went went into full swing. So that's been something that we've been seeing and we've been focusing on. Let's not forget that with the advent of e-commerce, with cloud, companies are looking more and more even into outsourcing of certain functions as part of the cost-cutting measures. So we are seeing a lot of international transfers of data, and this has given an impetus to many countries in the region to step up their efforts uh, and they are starting to put in place more robust legislation to to protect personal data. And I believe this trend will continue to grow in the region. And this kind of ties back very well to what we discussed about the growth data in Asia Pacific, Mm -hmm. right? With Asia Pacific being seen as the next big growth region, Mm -hmm. I think that you will see a lot more exciting and varied topics of compliance coming out of the Asia Pacific region, much more than what we saw historically. Nice. Thank you so much for those valuable updates. I was certainly listening and learning as you went through them. Wonderful. So nice to have an opportunity to work with you again, Achana. I want to thank you so much, not only for your friendship, which includes you coming through from me and finally getting on the podcast, but also for your time and expertise. It's been a pleasure to learn from you. And on behalf of Lisa and myself and our audience, we thank you for being here today and sharing your time and knowledge with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I must apologize. It took so long, Mary, but you're fantastic. (laughs) And what you guys are doing with with the Great Women in Compliance is so amazing. It is so inspiring and happy to be your biggest cheerleader. Ah, 
Thank you I so much. You. Thank you. All right back at you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.